Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21 as we um, continue in our series in Galatians. Let me ask that you stand as we, as we read God's Word together. I'm going to read, well, I'm going to read the first two sections of the three sections of, of the chapter. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. We pray, our God and our King, that you would not just teach us what your word says and means. We pray that we would not just walk out understanding your word better but we pray that You would use it to change us. We would rather be doers of Your Word and not just hearers only. Make us new and different 
people as we conform more and more into the image of Christ. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. You, um, you come home from a long day of work. You're tired. You're sore. Your feet hurt. You get home. You eat supper. You kind of get all that cleaned up. And you plop down in your chair. And kind of the day is done. And it's time to relax. And as soon as you plop down in your chair, you say, Finally. You've been fussing at your children for weeks now, trying to get them to make their bed in the morning. And every single day after they leave for school, you walk into their room and their bed's a wreck. Until finally you you walk in one morning, you check in after them, they've gone to school for the day, and you find their bed is made and you sort of exclaim with joy, finally! You've been struggling with math. Math homework every night. I don't like math homework. I don't understand math. I don't get it. I can't remember everything. Math is hard. You, you struggle, you work, you do the homework, you study for the test, and you bring home eh, kind of grades on the math. You go and you get extra help, you still bring home eh, kind of grades on the math until finally one day you get that grade back and there's a 96 on that test and you're excited and you say, finally. You read Genesis 21 and you say, finally. It's about time. Finally, that which we've been waiting for, that which we've been longing for, that which we've been sitting on the edge of our seats for, finally. We've finally gotten there. Why? Why do you say finally? Well, one reason is because God finally begins to fulfill His promises by providing a son. It's been 25 years years. In Genesis 12, when Abraham was called out of his homeland, out of Ur, told to go and God would stop him when he got to the land God wanted him to have, told to follow him, grab, grab your wife, grab Lot, grab those that you're going to care for and, and go and I'm going to give you children and I'm going to give you land, and your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky, and like the dust of the earth, and when you get to the land, I'll tell you when to stop, you just go and follow me. That was, that was in Genesis 12. Abraham was 75. We're told here he's 100. It's been 25 years. Imagine if Amazon offered 25 day shipping. You'd never order from Amazon. Wait 25 days? You're kidding me. I don't want to wait 25 minutes at the restaurant for freshly picked produce, freshly baked breads, freshly grilled meat. I mean, we don't want to wait 25 minutes. 25 years since Abraham was promised a son. And so far between 
Genesis 12 and Genesis 21, he's angered Pharaoh by lying to him about his sister wife. He's angered Abimelech by lying to him about his sister wife. He has met face to face with some pre-incarnate form of Christ, of the second person of the Godhead. He's been told four or five times now that he would have children. He would be a blessing to the nations. He would have land. Oh, he has had a son by an Egyptian slave woman. Abraham and Sarah, 25 years later, 24 years later, 24 years and a few months later, remain childless and landless. They have no child to call their own, and they're still living in a tent. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, and I'm pretty sure last time I checked, that's past childbearing years. And then we get to verses 1 and 2. The chapter begins with Yahweh showing up. The Lord, it's the all caps Lord word. It's Yahweh, the covenant making, covenant keeping God has showed up. He's he's visited Sarah. But notice the key phrases that show up three different times in the first two verses. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. The Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. She conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. In fact, the third and the second, they're actually the same word both times in Hebrew. Three times in the first two verses, we're told that God is doing something that only God could do And that he's doing exactly what he's been saying all along he would do. He's come at exactly the time he had promised he would come. He's come to to open the womb of this woman who was entirely too old to have children. Her husband is ancient. She's ten years short of ancient, barren, but her pregnancy shouldn't be a surprise to us because we've read about it over and over and over again. God's doing what only He can do, but He's doing what He's been saying all along He would do. You notice His revealed will takes center stage in the first two verses. As He had said, as He had promised, as God had spoken to Him. But that's not not all. In fact, look at verse 4. After Isaac is born, notice what Abraham does and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. Wait, 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 that sounds familiar. 
We've read this before, right? I mean, isn't that what God said back in Genesis 17? Oh, Moses tells us, doesn't he? Right here in verse 4. Abraham circumcised Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Again, God's Word takes center stage in the birth of Isaac. Oh, but there's more. Because look at verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Do you remember? I seem to recall 25 years ago or so. Abraham wasn't Abraham's name. You remember he was initially Abram. And for years, for several chapters in Genesis, he was called Abram. God changed his name to Abraham to be the father of many nations. For that matter, Sarah's name wasn't always Sarah. It was once Sarai. And it's been changed to Sarah. There's coming a day when we will read of a son born named Jacob, and his name will be changed to Israel. But Isaac's name never changes. It's the, the patriarch, whose name never... We talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham's name changes at some point. Jacob's name's name changes at some point. Isaac's name never changes. Why is that? Wait a minute. Didn't God tell them to name him Isaac? God named him from the start. God gave him that name way back in Genesis 17, verse 19. God told them, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Isaac. You're going to name him Laughter. Because in chapter 18, you're going to laugh again when I tell you that you will, even in your old age, have a son. In other words, Moses could have written in verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, comma, as God had commanded him. Four verses. Four times. Chapter 21 emphasizes God's Word. God's promise. God's command being brought to fruition in the life of His people. In the first two, God's doing only what God can do according to promises made, some of them 25 years prior. In the second two, Abraham is doing what God has commanded him to do. Abraham and Sarah now have a son. A son named Laughter, because Sarah's laughter changes from the laughter of doubt to the laughter of joy. She now laughs and rejoices at the birth of a son. God's promises are being fulfilled. God's word is being fulfilled. God is beginning to fulfill His promises by providing a son. But there's a second reason we say, finally, when we read chapter 21. Not only is God providing a son, but God is also beginning to fulfill His promises by removing 
a son. That strikes our minds as almost impossible. Wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me that God is fulfilling a promise by taking one son away? By getting some, someone out of the picture? By getting Ishmael out of their house? Ishmael appears to be jealous. It's not specific in verse 9 exactly what kind of laughter uh, Ishmael has. What, what, what exactly Sarah sees. She sees, she sees Ishmael laughing, mocking. It's, it's some sort of, of laughter, probably laughing at Isaac in the New Testament passage we read just a few minutes ago, uh, that's how Paul understands it. Paul reads this passage and understands that Ishmael is actually persecuting Isaac. That's the language Paul used in Galatians 4. Ishmael seems to be jealous. Isaac's now um, about three years old. That was the age at which most kids were weaned. So he's roughly three, which makes Ishmael roughly 16. The three-year-old gets a party. The three-year-old gets a celebration. This child is... You can almost sense Ishmael recognizing he's being replaced. The son of the promise. The son of, of Abraham and Sarah gets this celebration at the age of three. This celebrating of, of he's weaned, he's grown, he's older. Um, his life expectancy changes at that point. If you can live to be three, you could expect to kind of live longer at that point. Sarah saw Ishmael laughing, verse 9. Technically, according to ancient Near East law, technically, by virtue of the birth of Ishmael, Hagar became kind of like a second wife to Abraham. She, she technically, and, and certainly Ishmael has rights and privileges as a son of Abraham. That's what Sarah doesn't want. That's what Sarah wants to make sure doesn't happen. Abraham, get rid of them. You get rid of Hagar, the slave woman, and that son of hers. You've got to send them on their way. They can't stay. No son of that slave woman is sharing in the inheritance with my son. That's her reaction in verse 10. They've got to be gone. They've got to be no longer part of this family. They don't get to participate in the rights and privileges as... Well, he doesn't get the rights and privileges as a son of Abraham. She wants, she wants them gone. She reacts in anger. It's understandable. But she's thinking short term. She's thinking, she's not thinking of future generations. She's thinking, what's going to happen to my son Isaac when Abraham dies? Or worse, 
What's Ishmael going to get when Abraham dies? Ishmael must be gone. He's got to be out of the picture because he's not getting anything. He's not, there's no splitting the inheritance between Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael gets zero. Isaac gets all. That's Sarah's mindset. And I'll be honest with you, I, I, you read chapter 21, and verse 12 almost doesn't sound right. Like you almost have to read verse 12 a second time. You almost have to go, hold up, wait a minute. God really wants the same thing Sarah wants. God actually wants Hagar and Ishmael gone. Notice verse 12, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. You remember the last time she wanted them gone. Abraham abdicated. Abraham played the, the, the absent husband. No involvement. No I don't know. I mean, whatever you want, honey. That's fine. You can, whatever you think is right, you go ahead. I'll just stay out of it. That was his reaction before. This time he's torn. He's torn because of his son. It's not Hagar. Notice it's because of his son. It's on account of the fact that this is a 16-year-old son that you want me to send out of my house. This is a, a boy that's been in my home for 16 years and he's my son and I'm his dad and you're telling me, Sarah, get rid of him? And then God comes along and goes, hey, Abraham, do what she says. You too? I mean, you're going to... He's got to be just completely torn up about this. But notice... Notice the promise God makes to Abraham. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to take care of him not because of him. I'm going to take care of him because of you. Verse 13. On account of the fact that he is your offspring, I will provide for him. I will take care of him. I will make a nation of him. So why on earth is God on Sarah's side? See, if you're Abraham, that's the thought you have, right? Right? We know better than to ask it that way. That sounds like a terrible way to ask that question. But if you're Abraham, you had to be thinking, God, are you really on her side this time? There's, you, this can't be right. Why is God on Sarah's side? Well, we're told in verse 12, Ishmael is not the one. Isaac is the promised seed. Isaac is the chosen offspring. It's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. I've chosen Isaac. I've not chosen Ishmael. It's okay, Abraham. Send him out. Why? Because he's not the one. He's not the son of the promise. He's the son of the flesh. He's not the one through whom your offspring will be named. You can't miss. As difficult as it is for us, 
you can't miss the doctrine of election right there in verse 12. There's one chosen son. There's one rejected son. Well, based on what they are doing, right? Well, no, one of them's 16 and really hasn't done anything. One of them's three. And actually, he was the son of the promise. He was the chosen one way back in, verse, in chapter 17 when God told him, name your son Isaac. You can't ignore, you can't miss the reality of election based not on their obedience, not on their works, not on anything they've done. Isaac's wind? Is that an accomplishment? Is that a work that would merit God's favor? I mean, look, he's graduated to a bottle. He's eating real food now. Therefore, God's... That's not a work that God would accept as holy and righteous. That's just growing up. Before he's even had a chance to earn God's favor, he's the chosen favored son. And it's all because based solely on the good pleasure of Yahweh. And yet Ishmael still gets benefits of covenant promises. God's going to take care of him because he's Abraham's son, because he's Abraham's seed. He gets benefits of covenant promises, even if he doesn't benefit in the form of salvation. He benefits from from being connected to Abraham, even if it doesn't mean eternal life in heaven. Truth is, Ishmael and his descendants are going to continue to persecute, to torment, to laugh at Isaac and his children. You watch the news. That's what's going on in the Middle East right now. Ishmael's descendants are still laughing at Isaac's descendants. That's exactly the struggle going on in the Middle East. Ishmael will be blessed. He'll be cared for. He'll grow into a great nation because he's Abraham's son. But he must be removed from the household because he is not the child of blessing. He's not the child of promise. He's not the one through whom God's seed, God's offspring will come. The promise is through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Therefore, Ishmael must go. God begins to fulfill His promises by providing a son. He begins to fulfill His promises by removing a son. He also begins to fulfill His promises by providing a place. The rest of the chapter, which we didn't read, Abimelech comes to Abraham with Phicol, his um, chairman of the joint chiefs, the commander of his, of his army. And he wants to, a, a, a treaty, a, a covenant, an agreement with Abraham. And notice he comes, verse 22 And he says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Do you remember the last thing Abimelech said to Abraham? It was something along the lines of, 
you're doing things that ought not to be done. You've tried to pass off your wife as just your sister and not tell me she was your wife and now my whole household, God closed the wounds of all the women in His household because of this thing that He had done because He had another man's wife in His harem. And now He can come to Abraham and say, God is with you in all that you do. It's been... It's been three or four years. It's been four years now, probably, give or take. He's had time to watch as as Abraham has grown and his possessions have grown and he's become a blessing to those around him and Abimelech recognizes God's presence with Abraham. And he comes to Abraham and says, let's make an agreement. A a non-aggression agreement. We we won't attack each other. You won't won't cause trouble for me in this land. But notice the language that Abimelech uses. Swear to me, verse 23, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. He wants this permanent binding agreement between Abraham and Abraham's descendants and Abimelech and his descendants. That's covenant language. That's Abimelech coming to Abraham and saying, let's think beyond just our generation. Let's think for future generations, for generations that are yet to come. Let's make an agreement of peace that binds not just you and me, but our children and their children and their children's 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 children that lasts forever. You get the sense that Abimelech recognizes not so much who Abraham is, but he has the sense of who Abraham could become. Of who his offspring, of just what his offspring could become. And he wants to protect Not just himself, but he wants to protect his children and his children's children and and his children for generations yet to come. Do you think covenantally like that? Are you thinking about yourself? Are you thinking about your children? Or are you raising children in such a way that you're thinking of their children's children's children? Are you thinking covenantally the the kind of way that Abimelech does? Are you thinking on behalf of claiming God's promises on behalf of your offspring and your offspring's offspring? When Abraham finally gets involved in this discussion, he says, look, there's there's this issue of a well, Abimelech. And Abimelech says, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is the first I've heard of it. What are you talking about? 
Well, there's this well that I dug and your people have taken it from me and not let me use it. And Abimelech says, the well is yours. He wants Abimelech's people to treat him with the same kindness that he has just promised to Abimelech. Abraham has been living in a tent. He's a nomad. He's a sojourner. That language comes up. Several times as we read through Abraham's life, we see it right here at the end of chapter 21 and verse 33. Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. He's a a nomad. He's still living in a tent. And at the end of, of chapter 21, he's still living in a tent. Except that now, he has a piece of property. It's not much. It's not a place you're going to build a house necessarily. But he's got just enough dirt that he can look at that well and say, that well is mine. I don't know what an ancient Near East well looks like. A hole in the ground. Probably with, you know, the concrete blocks circled up around it and the little house on top. Then you crank the... He's got enough dirt that now he can go, wait a minute, God promised me a son. Here's Isaac. God promised a place. I have a well. It's not much, but God's beginning to fulfill His promise because I have a piece of dirt that I can call mine right here in this promised land. Yes, he's still sojourning. Yes, he's still living in a tent. But it's a start. God begins to fulfill his promises by providing Abraham a son, by removing a son, and by providing him a place. Lastly, this should all sound a little familiar to you. There should be sections of Genesis 21 that just ring echoes of familiarity to you. Wait a minute, a a barren woman who has no child suddenly giving birth. A son who's been promised for, for years to come, now born, now with his family, with his people. Truth is, God ultimately fulfills His promises by providing the Son. Jesus, too, is born to a woman who shouldn't have had children. She was a virgin. Born at at an appointed time, Galatians 4 tells us when the fullness of time came at the proper and right time, just as for centuries He had been promised Jesus was born. Read Matthew 1. The promise comes. The offspring comes. Just as God says in verse 12. Your offspring is named through Isaac. Read Matthew 1. Jesus is born through Isaac's line. This all points us to the final and full and ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. 
Paul tells us in Galatians 3, Jesus is the promised seed. He's the fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham. And we, by faith, are also Abraham's offspring. Do you see it? You read chapter 21 and you say, finally. Finally, the seed of the woman is starting to show up more clearly to me. Finally, God begins to fulfill His promises to Abraham, and and not just to Abraham, but to us. I'm getting to see the beginning of the fulfillment of all that God has promised He said He would do. God is fulfilling His promises. And we say, finally. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. First, what God promises, God fulfills. We would do well to remember that. We've got to be careful, of course. Because I want to dig through Scripture and find where God has promised me a brand spanking new car. I want to dig through the pages of Scripture and find where God has promised me a bigger house that's always clean and children who never do anything wrong. I want to find in the pages of Scripture where God promises to give me everything I want and more. I want to find in the pages of Scripture where God promises for our church to blow up huge overnight. I want to find in the pages of Scripture where my wife has a spouse that loves her correctly, perfectly every single day of the week. We aren't given all of those promises, are we? I'm not promised an extra seven inches of height and perfect basketball skills. I'm not promised to be able to hit a curveball. I am promised that in Christ He says He will never leave us or forsake us. I am promised forgiveness for sin in Christ and in Him alone. I'm promised by faith in Christ eternal life with Christ. promised persecution. I'm promised trials. I'm promised sanctification. I'm promised that that those whom He justified, He also glorifies. That which God promises, God fulfills. God is at work bringing His promises to fruition. A second application, right on the heels of that, be careful because God's timing is not our timing. We want instant sanctification. We don't want sanctification by process. We, well, that's probably not true. We want sanctification by process in ourselves. We want instant sanctification for our spouse and for our children. We want instant sanctification for our boss. We want instant sanctification for those that work for us. 
God's timing is not our timing. 25 years since God called Abraham out of Ur and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. You'll have children. I'm going to give you a place. And right now he has a child and a little small piece of dirt that's really probably a hole in the ground with water in it. It's another 2,000 years before the promised seed would be born to Mary. Thousands of years from the first promise in Genesis 3 to the fulfillment in Galatians 4 when Christ is born in the fullness of time at the appointed time. God's timing is not our timing, but what God promises, God brings to fruition. A third application. As Paul told us in Galatians 3 and 4, you belong to one of these two women. You are one of these two sons. You belong to Isaac. You belong to Ishmael. If you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, you're a child of the promise. If you're trusting in the flesh, if you're trusting in your own works, your own obedience, your own circumcision, your own baptism, your own whatever else you could insert into that sentence, you're a child of Ishmael. For that matter, the sign of entrance into the covenant community, circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism in the New, that sign was never a guarantee of salvation. Ishmael is circumcised. There's no promise or guarantee of his salvation. If you're trusting in the flesh, if you're trusting in your obedience to save you, then as Paul reminds us in Galatians 4, you have to be 100% perfectly obedient, 100% of the time, all the time, perfectly and completely. If you're going to trust in the law to save you, then you have to keep the whole law everywhere, every time, every day. And we all know we can't do that. That's why there's the true seed. That's why verse 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's why verse 12, through Isaac comes Christ. The child of promise whose life and blood can save us from sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have fulfilled your promises to us in Christ. We thank you that you have fulfilled that which you have said you would do, you have done. You have sent a Redeemer to save us from sin as You have promised over centuries, over millennia, before You finally brought it to fruition. Father, we pray that You would give us the grace and the patience to trust in Your work, doing that which You have promised to do, that which You only can do. Use us. And then grant us the patience to trust in Your timing. 
And Father, we pray that you would be at work in us. Sanctifying us. Conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.